You are listening to the first episode of Shawzy 24-7. Welcome to the Shawzy 24-7 podcast. Talking real estate, title insurance, development, business, and all things Philly. Now let's welcome in your host. He's back. Mark Shaw. Mark Shaw. Welcome to the first episode of Shawzy 24-7, where you will hear discussions about some of the many things in business that I deal with on a daily basis. The goal is to bring you insight from industry experts from all angles of the real estate and title insurance industries, as well as my favorite, all things Philly. Really excited to get this thing kicked off with one of my true favorites, Howard Turk. Howard Turk is a true visionary, best-selling author, lawyer, and title industry strategist with over 30 years of experience fostering growth in my industry, the title sector. His lifetime of experience includes big business roles such as a senior leadership role at First American Title in the US and internationally, where he was instrumental in the success of First American-owned Canadian Title driving growth from startup to industry leader with over 900 employees, $400 million of annual revenue, and 65% market share. Howard also owned and built a 30-employee real estate law firm, as well as a 36-state licensed title agency based out of Texas. He's also been associated with several other title ventures. Howard has authored two consumer targeted real estate books, numerous newspaper columns and articles, and has also appeared in many real estate television related shows. Howard has used the skill set that currently allows him to apply the lessons learned from the public company structure to smaller title agencies in a relevant and practical manner. I like to personally call Howard our CEO in the box. All right. So here we are, uh, Howard Turk. Welcome to Shawzy, twenty four seven. Thank you, Mark. Howard, what are your views on what seems to be an accelerating contraction going on in the title industry? There are different models that are going on in terms of contraction. There's um, underwriters that are emerging with the Fidelity Stewart deal, um, and also some larger agencies that are consolidating. Uh, but at the same time, there's other market segments that are are smaller, where the mom and pop shops are rolling up into more established title companies. And I think there's a, a variety of things that are going on in the industry. On the one hand, there's economic opportunities that will arise at any point in the market, and that's really what's going on with the Fidelity Stewart deal. Um, but independent of that, on the smaller side, we have a lot of title agents that are older. The demographics of the ownership of title agencies are in their 50s and 60s, and a lot of these people are looking at uh, retirement plans. At the same time, technology costs and infrastructure development costs are rising to the point that some of the smaller companies are really at risk of no longer being economically viable. Add into that the nightmare of wire fraud, and a lot of the smaller companies are just saying it's not worth the risk, and I need a retirement plan, I should just roll up into a larger company. So we're seeing a variety of, of factors that are motivating this change, uh, but it's a healthy change and ultimately will uh, produce a better industry. So you kind of touched on uh, one of the follow-up questions I had on this, and it's regarding the M&A activity that you know um, 
do, do you find, you know, do you believe that the consolidation and contraction um, and M&A activity um, for small agency, do you, think, do you think it poses problems or do you think it's a good thing? No, I think it's a good thing. I mean, the, the key to a healthy industry is who is driving the source of transactions. And even in a roll-up model, you still have not undermined the, uh, the importance of the relationship between the realtor, lender, and the title agent. And that it's just that what the title agent does is slightly different. So instead of them having to worry about building a duplicate infrastructure for every single title agency, there's going to be fewer infrastructures, which should produce more efficiency and should lend itself to some of the newer uh, models that are being developed that will produce more uh, more of, a, of an efficient experience or a friendlier experience for consumers. Okay, let's touch on something that you already brought up, and that's the fidelity acquisition of Stewart Guarantee. Um, What's your opinion on it? Do you think it's going to uh, hold through? And uh, what do you think some of the long-term ramifications are? To we're, we were once a big five uh, industry, and we're going to sink down to a a big three, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a tricky question to answer, Mark, without having uh, intimate knowledge of the terms of the contract between Fidelity and Stewart. But from a thirty thousand foot perspective, we it's important to also look at history and look at how. The, uh, the Land America transaction unfolded. So <clears throat> it, just because Fidelity has announced a merger with Stewart doesn't mean that they're going to close that merger in the way it's been described. Uh, there are, are many things that can happen that will disrupt that deal. One of the things that we see in the marketplace right now is that because Fidelity announced that one of the motivating factors was the elimination of infrastructure intended to produce $135 million in annual savings. Um, the people at Stewart that I know are looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, well, wait a minute, I'm that infrastructure. And what we're seeing across the board with our recruiting um, colleagues is a mass exodus of Stewart people, good people. And they're going to the other. They're looking for other economic opportunities because they're no longer feeling that their jobs are stable, secure, and safe. That's a problem for the deal because when it comes time to close, the business of Stewart might look very different than it does today. Uh, you'll note that they've scheduled a very long closing into 2018. Uh, I don't know why that is, but I suppose there may be some legal complexities that might require that. Either way, time is not Stewart's friend. And uh, it may well be that the uh, the business will uh, will disappear. Was that a bad thing for the industry? I don't think so. I think if you look back in time when Fidelity bought Chicago Title and when they bought Land America, they, they always get a big bump in market share. But ultimately, it seems that that market share seems to dissipate over time. And uh, Fidelity right now as a company or as a family of companies, it's about a third of the market is theirs. That still leaves two-thirds to somebody else. With the steward acquisition, they'll have a bump to 46. But if you look at the trends in underwriters, you'll see that in the last 10 years, Old Republic has gained significantly in market share, as has the advent of the independent title companies, uh, the independent title underwriters. Now, it used to be that the independent title underwriters were beholden to the big four, big five, for their reinsurance. And they needed that reinsurance in order to be economically viable. That's changed. Uh, the the uh, companies that are well, many of the regionals now have strong reinsurance that they've arranged on their own in the European markets. There's an association called ATRA, the American Title Reinsurance Association, that many of them belong to. Others 
have forged relationships with reinsurers uh, independent of that. The end result is that they're no longer beholden to First American, Stewart, Failure Republic for their reinsurance. And that's a game changer uh, that also enables them to compete more effectively in the commercial markets. So I think what we'll see is a healthy industry. I don't believe that there's anything anti-competitive uh, with the Fidelity Stewart merger. I think that there's going to be um, an elimination of a competitor and probably a shuffling of a lot of key resources that Stewart has to their competitors. It, it's a shame because the culture of Stewart really is a great culture and they're a good company, but um, you know, could be a textbook example of how to screw up a title company and do what they did. Howard, if you were talking to a small or let's say mid-sized company, what do you tell them in order to guarantee their ability to compete and survive in these changing times? There's a couple of things that they can do. Uh, the most there's a few equally important things. One of them, of course, is making sure that they avail themselves of really good technology. There's off-the-shelf production software that are is very very good. The problem with most of the off-the-shelf production software systems, though, is that they tend to be shells, and you have to hire someone to make sure that you design your workflows and implement uh, and optimize the technology correctly. And I, I feel that falls into play whether you're using Qualia, Resware, Ramquest, Sofro, Title Express. They're all good, but they're only as good as you can make them. So I put a lot of effort into workflow design, making sure that you got your house in order from a an infrastructure development perspective, that would be number one. Number two, I would make sure that you are try to get appointed by a good underwriter. I love the regional underwriters and I think they have a lot of really good advantages, but I also see some of the tools that First American Fidelity has that they make available to agents and they're amazing uh, if you use them. So I think there's a, uh, an opportunity to, uh, to learn from the big, big guys as well. The next thing I think that would be most important is to avoid the field of dreams mentality. Some title agents will build it and hope that they'll come. Uh, it's actually better to do it the other way and work on fostering relationships because the relationships are the key to getting business in the door. Remember, there's different models and different segments of the business that people want. But for a smaller company, they tend to be local. They tend to be within a community, they tend to be more purchase-driven than refi, and uh, they get those transactions because of people that they know. So being sure that you're doing something that fosters those relationships is important. But remember that your competitors have access to very slick technology, and some of the technologies that the, the family underwriters have that enable their directs is very, very powerful. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword and a little scary, but there is money to be made, and it can be a very rewarding business. Howard, what has your experience been with offshoring, BPOs, so on and so forth, and how successful have you seen them working out, especially for mid-sized companies? Using an, an offshore or an outsourcer or any of the BPO providers can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be a full-on disaster. The challenge is that you're dealing with people that are in another continent, they're far away. Some of them literally will have a, uh, a technology that links a bunch of housewives in their garage that are gonna do your searches and produce your documents. 
and you just have no idea about how they're doing, what they're doing, and what the quality will be. Uh, if you're going to select an outsourcer, you should be definitely looking at the references for the outsourcer, making sure they know what they are doing, making sure that their um, workflows are properly documented, um, and making sure they, that they have a track record. You don't want someone learning how to do this on your dime. Okay. Howard, so we're going to switch gears for a second. We're going to talk about inner office stuff. Can you talk to me about work culture within the office and how vital it is for employers to stay focused on providing a solid work culture? Absolutely, Mark. The While we have all these fancy technologies in the title industry these days and, and new ways of doing things and production softwares and all that, at the end of the day, the process is pretty much the same as it was 50 years ago. And you're heavily reliant on the quality of people. Look at the wire fraud uh, business, for example. All kinds of, of ways and means are being designed to mitigate the prospect of wire fraud. But remember that every wire fraud relies on some employee doing something stupid. If you can prevent employees from doing things that are uh, erroneous, you're not going to have a wire fraud. And the question is, how do you get someone to want to do their job properly and how do you make their their uh, workplace a place that they feel uh, that they're a part of and they're rewarded remember people don't leave jobs they tend to leave managers and the culture and so there's that but independent of that is the fact that every employee that you lose can cost um, I forget the number but I think it's three months of salary to replace just in terms of other things that can go on that to, to retrain somebody to take their place. So the culture is very important, and we work very closely with a lot of our clients to try and bridge cultural gaps. Very often we see gaps between escrow and <clears throat> title. We see gaps between escrow title and sales. We see gaps between sales and funding. A lot of these people have a misunderstanding of what the others do, but the elements of the business are all interdependent, and without one you can't have the other. So. We try to have some culture building exercises that foster a better understanding. We want to keep people involved. We also want to keep people motivated and excited to go to work. Excellent. Howard, one of the great things that you, uh, Prosperitas Forward, did within the Worldwide Land Transfer Office uh, was encouraging Kaizen. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about Kaizen and, and how it works within um, within especially smaller offices and uh, growing offices, offices that are scaling. Absolutely. Kaizen is a, is a very old philosophy. It's a Japanese philosophy of, um, inc of constant improvement in incremental steps. I think it was founded by one of the car companies back in the day. And in a title environment, I like to let people have fun with it. And what we've learned is that as managers, we know a certain amount of things that are going on in the company, but the people in the trenches might know things or might see things that we're unable to. So we want to create an environment where they're motivated to share what they see and incented to help the company's bottom line by producing efficiencies that are efficiencies that really they're in the it's, it's really a result of their perspective. So from a Kaizen perspective, what we typically do is have a contest. We appoint uh, someone each month to be the captain or queen of Kaizen. They walk around with a Kaizen logo on their hat or the T-shirt. 
and they solicit input from all the employees on ways to make things better. The questions have to be very, very deliberately vague and broad, and we ask uh, people to tell us what they think could be done differently. The results that we get uh, can be very startling, and um, in some cases, we get a lot of pitching and moaning and complaining, um, so we know which employees are unhappy, which is also valuable. But very often, we get a little tidbit of wisdom uh, that produces an efficiency that reduces the amount of time per transaction necessary from an employee perspective. Sometimes there's a physical cost. I remember one time years ago when we first did this where uh, someone in the mailroom said, hey, if we were to reduce the size of this letter that goes out on every transaction, uh, we could put it in a different size envelope. If we put it in a different size envelope, we're going to save two cents in postage um, per transaction. And 20 years later, that's about a million dollars in savings that have been generated as a result. So we've seen, and I know, Mark, you've seen it as well, where uh, in some instances, there could be a different way of handling an email inbox. There could be a different workflow uh, hack. Hack is not a bad word. Hack is a shortcut. But the people that are in the best position to learn those shortcuts or see those shortcuts are the ones that are in the trenches. So we ask for their input, and then we have a contest at the end of the month and provide a reward uh, in a very public manner to the employee whose idea is implemented that month. And that's something that never changes because we have to always assume that we can always learn something new. Kaizen for us was an amazing um, add-on and we thank you for that. Being the great sales coach that you also are, not necessarily just for title, but in business overall, what is your best advice to a salesperson out there that might be listening to you right now? My best advice to a salesperson would be to be extremely well organized and be unapologetically themselves. What we see salespeople do very often is um, be the result of their lifetime of conditioning and <clears throat> just not be out there in their own way. Uh, there are many, many ways to do to succeed in sales. One of the best ways is to just be honest and be yourself and be tenacious and relentless and persistent but organized. Howard, what is the most rewarding part of your current role now with Prosperitas for? <clears throat> what we like to see the best is is um, our clients grow and prosper. Um, our goal in setting up every business has a why, and uh, our why and the why cannot be to make a profit. There has to be a reason that drives you to do what you do. And what we're trying to do is we believe in the value of small business in America. We believe in the value of independent title agents. Um, even though there's been consolidation in the industry, we want to support the independent agents. And we do that by teaching them things that we know, that the big guys know, that they don't know. So when we see them listening to us and they're open to us, then uh, those things work and help take them to the next level. And that provides a better company, provides a better workplace experience for the staff, and provides more jobs for people that are working there. So that's, that's really the most rewarding part of it. And what's the ideal company for you to work with? <clears throat> the ideal company for us to work with is one that's uh, not too small, not too large, uh, led by people who are very open-minded and technology-oriented because they're the ones that are in the best position to do things differently and um, allow change to, uh, to come into their lives. 
the, the, the worst ones are the ones that think they know everything and believe that no one can tell them anything and I've been doing it this way for 30 years and I'm not changing. It's worked for 30 years. Uh, why would it why would why would it not work now? And I hear that a lot and, it, and honestly when I hear that I think Okay, um, if I follow that rationale, I would be saying, you know, I've been alive ever since I was born. I'm going to live forever. So if you think that that logic is correct, then you're definitely not our client. Um, but we look for clients that are receptive to, uh, to, to advice. And not everybody is. When you're assisting or when you're working or consulting with, with one of these clients that is receptive to your advice, and they do start scaling and they start growing. I mean, I, I go back to the days that you were working in Canada and, you know, growing a company to over 900 employees, $400 million of revenue. How does someone in that seat stay level-headed, keep their mind straight, stay, stay at peace with themselves and not literally pull their hair out? Well, for me, it's daily yoga. <laughs> but everybody's different. I think the, the important thing is to recognize that um, you have to have a plan. Everything that's done well is done twice, just like a building. A building is first conceived and, and uh, designed as a blueprint, and then it's constructed. It's done twice. Uh, any good business plan is exactly the same way. So we believe very much in measuring twice and cutting once, and we execute on that. But at the same time, we've learned to not be dogmatic in any way and to roll with opportunities. Opportunities will come across at times that are inconvenient to your sense of long-term planning. You just have to be able to assess it and roll with it. And remember that, that things are going to change and just make sure that you stay grounded and open. Great stuff, Howard. Uh, one last question for you, uh, a little off the wall here. If you can live in any era either go back in time, into the future, or stay present time? What era would you choose and why? Well, that's a great question. I, I wish I'd had time to ponder that. <laughs> but, but I think um, there, there are things that are really good in past eras. I think that we've lost some of the civility that we had back in the day. Um, I fear what technology and smartphones are doing to our culture and our children uh, so I'm worried about the future and I, I understand the great things that have happened in the past but I would probably I would have to say the present because there are, we never know what what's going to happen and um, I think we just have to embrace the opportunities and and uh, challenges opportunities and joys that life throws our way and there's uh, there's not really a lot of value in thinking of what it might be in, in another time forward or backwards, uh, we're here. We have to live in the present. It's a great answer, Howard. I love it. Um, parting shots, anything anything you want to add? Uh, you know, we, we loved having you and having you as a consultant within the Worldwide Land Transfer Office is always a blessing. And, you know, if you have anything to uh, touch on to all the smaller companies, especially that are out there that would not necessarily bring someone like yourself on or into their company. What would you tell them? I think for the smaller companies that might question their uh, viability and all the changes in the industry, I think what they have to remember is that 
at the end of the day, they control who gets the transaction. It's very difficult for the big family companies to get massive amounts of relationships. It all boils down to relationships, relationship between you and a lender, relationship between you and the realtor. Remember that most title companies do a good job most of the time. Uh, you want to find someone who's, who wants to send you the business. So when you take that fact and you say, all right, well, I'm going to build on that because I'm personable and people like me and I take pride in my work and I'll look after my clients and you're sincere, it's not that difficult to be able to plug in some of the newer technologies that enable you to level the playing field between you and the big guys. Granted, the big guys are always going to have um, advantages that you're not going to have because of their scale, but at the same time, people will go to who they like and uh, you have to never forget that. Howard, great stuff. Thanks for joining today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Mark. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's discussion with title industry leader and Prosperitas Forward founder, Howard Turk. If you did enjoy, please remember to subscribe to this podcast and share with a friend who may also enjoy the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at Chalzy99 or email me at mshaw at www.landtransfer.com. Thanks for listening to Shawzy 24-7.